You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Buying a home, if you ever have the chance to do it, will be one of the more significant events in your life. Uh, owning your own home. I mean, I remember for me, like I, I called the house I grew up in my house, but technically speaking, it was my mom's house. Just happened to be where my stuff was and where I slept. It was a different thing when I spent my money that I earned on purchasing a home. And I'll never forget when the paperwork signed and they handed it to me and they drove away and left, it dawning on me like, I own a home. I'm a homeowner. I possess land. That's my lawn. Hey, there's some kids on my lawn. Get off my lawn, right? You start to feel that, like, this is mine. I just remember this, this wonderful sense of relief, like as a newly married person, I'm like, man, like, we did it. We saved up our money. We stored it up and we purchased a home. We did it. Mission accomplished. This is awesome. And then I remember like a month or two later, uh, we had a friend come over that was better at houses and such. And uh, she came over and she was like, man, you, you did great. Like the foundation's solid, house looks good. We're like, great. She's like, yeah. Um, you know, only thing is uh, some water has seeped in through the back door and it's gotten underneath the tiles in your kitchen. So you're gonna have to rip all these tiles up and clean that up and, and replace the back door. And you're probably gonna wanna re-landscape to slope the water away from your house and get rid of that wood pile nearby. And I noticed you got mice in the garage. You're gonna have to take care of that. And pretty sure there's a rat in that good times van you let your sister park in your uh, driveway. So you're gonna have to fix that. And she starts enumerating this stuff. And I'm like, what, what, what? No, no, the house already got my money. I don't wanna give it more money. I bought it, we're supposed to be done now. And I remember it landing on me for the first time, like, no, Ben, houses don't stay in a steady state. They are constantly on a flow towards disintegration. Integer being one, dis, meaning not one, apart. Like your house is flowing towards chaos. It involves an intentional, volitional act of the will to continue to make it a place It's warm and safe for your family to thrive. Now, why do I mention that? Because what's true of homes is the same of relationships. Relationships are constantly on a drift away from intimacy towards isolation. I mean, think about your high school friends. Uh, As soon as the sports team you were on disbanded, as soon as you graduated from that school, the vast majority of them, you never spoke to again. Not unless you intentionally, volitionally worked to maintain those bonds do you stay connected. We tend to flow towards isolation. It takes intentionality to work towards intimacy. And what's true of a home, what's true of friendships, is true of a marriage. Marriages require intentional and continual and volitional work to make them places that are warm and strong for your family to thrive. Because the pull of society is towards isolation. And I know some young married couples strain to understand that that could be possible. No, Ben, we dated, we courted, we fell in love. We did it. You'll just wait. You'll both go to work. You'll be there 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 hours. You'll come home, have one to two hours to dig deep and share your soul. Or you can just turn on the TV. And then you have kids and they have needs and you gotta meet those needs and you're even more tired. And then you look at each other and you go, are you good? You good, I guess, I don't know. And vacations where you rekindle the romance become chances to visit the in-laws and on and on it goes. And then you wake up one day and you realize, hey, we're just roommates solving problems and the fire of the intimacy grows low. 
And yet you don't fall out of love. You fall out of trying. And for marriages, we have to realize like a fire must continually be stoked, like a house must continually be fixed. We have to intentionally work to repair and to refurbish the marriages in our life so they can be warm and strong for our families. And we're gonna watch today a couple do that. We've seen them feel the spark of attraction. We've watched them navigate the confusing thrill of courtship. We saw them consummate their marriage last week. Now we're gonna see their first bit of conflict and we're gonna watch how they navigate it well. Now, before we jump in, I know some of you are saying this because I can see you. You're like, oh, well, I'm not married, so I guess this is for the other people. Where are they? Pray for them, pray for those guys. Uh, <laughs> but listen, I know if you're here and a millennial and younger, uh, vast majority of you aren't married, I get it. Uh, and statistically speaking, uh, your generation is getting married later than uh, any generation in recorded human history. So you may go, this doesn't apply for me, but, but listen to this about your marriage. As soon as people understand uh, this about your generation, that you're slower to get married, they, they start to look for factors, and there are many as to why. Uh, many secular commentators immediately go to finances. It's because they're not able to accumulate wealth in the same way, and so the reason for delay in marriage is financial. Which there are financial factors, but you go, no, I mean, poor people have been getting married for centuries. Like, that can't be it. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that people like Donna and I got married and a date night was like scrounge around for loose change and split a burrito, right? We were young, poor, and in love. That's possible. And so it's not just financial. There are sexual reasons and the way sexual dynamics have changed in the culture and we won't get back into that subject. But there are other reasons. And, and for many people, the change is not just financial, it's philosophical. That among young people, marriages are now no longer the cornerstone of a young adult life, but a capstone. In a building, a cornerstone is what you rest the whole building on. And previously, couples would meet each other, fall in love, get married, and say, hey, let's pool our resources, gifts, all we got, and let's build a life together. Now marriage is a capstone for many. It's the final thing. No, in my 20s, I need to build myself. I need to self-actualize, realize what I love, build my own career, build my own financial base. And then once I've successfully launched into adulthood, then I can add on a marriage, right? And so we've seen marriage as a capstone rather than a cornerstone. And you go, what's driving that? Uh, for many people, that drive is really two things that have increased in value in America, individualism and materialism. Individualism saying, no, I need to self-actualize. I need to figure out what I love. I need to figure out what I'm like. I need to advance my career. I need to do me before I get somebody else in the mix. And I want to make sure to establish my career and my financial base, not because I'm scared I'm going to starve to death, but so I can maintain the standard of living I got used to at my parents' house. And so we delay marriage, even though statistically, married couples that pool resources are, uh, on average, much more financially successful. If you look at uh, the houses in D.C., they're usually owned by dual-income families. Right? So you go, what's the issue? Well, what's driving a lot of the individualism and materialism in your generation, if you look at some of it, and I'm not saying any of this is good or bad, I'm just telling you what's going on, but underneath a lot of that for people, if we're honest, is fear. I'm delaying marriage to do me because I'm afraid that if I bind my life together with you, it may cost me more than it gives me. I may lose educational opportunities. I may lose career opportunities. I may not be able to reach my goals. You may require more of me than I want to give. I may have to serve you rather than you serving me. Hey, we may not be able to pull the resource to buy all I want. I'll have to spend money on things you like. And we realize, hey, I see this other as a threat. But even if we get together, uh, man, I don't know. I, I, we may argue and fight and we may get divorced. And let me tell you something. Some of that fear is really valid. 
Statistically, a high percentage of millennials indicate that their greatest fear of marriage is divorce, of us not being able to handle conflict well. Uh, and, and really, the CDC reported that out of 100 marriages in the U.S., 42 end in divorce. That you've not seen couples able to navigate conflict well. So part of the delay is fear. I don't know how to navigate conflict, and I'm scared that we will be able to dissolution, dissolute, and it'll cost us. So even if you're not married, we need to figure out how do we navigate conflict well? Because let me tell you what's gonna happen to this couple. Relationships are not in a steady state. And when you run into conflict, you'll either spring apart and be further apart, or if you link hands and move through it together, you can actually arrive at deeper intimacy. Conflict brings the possibility of deeper communication and deeper trust. And so we're gonna watch this couple struggle well, and we're gonna see them move through adversity into deeper intimacy. And I wanna show you how to do it. So to begin, the woman's gonna speak and she's gonna recount a moment that happened in their past. And I gotta tell you this, biblical commentators go all over the place and their understanding of what's going on here because it's a poem and there's sort of an otherworldliness to it. As you're reading it, you'll sense it. Of like, are these actual events? Or is all this a metaphor to describe what's happening to them emotionally? It's a little hard to say. And yet, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take more of a conservative interpretive approach to show you what all of us agree is, is the main emphasis that's being brought up out in different parts of the text, all right? So we're gonna look at this. A couple navigate the fight for intimacy in the midst of conflict and miscommunication. And in verse two, it begins. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Now my heart, does that mean she's asleep, but she's dreaming? Is that what she means? I'm asleep, but my heart's awake? Or is that a nickname for her beloved? Don't know, hard to say. But she says, I'm asleep, and yet my heart was awake. Maybe this is a dream sequence. But then we do hear him, a sound. My beloved is knocking. Either way, she hears him knocking at the door, and then he begins to speak. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Now question, what do you think that man has on his mind? This is all the language that he used on their wedding night, right? What is happening here? He's been listening to Marvin Gaye on the way home, probably, right? And so he shows up and he's like, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Right? I mean, he's getting excited for some good loving with the mistress. And he says, for my head is wet with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. It's a hard world out there, but I've overcome obstacles to be with you, my beloved sweet princess dove, right? And in verse three, she responds. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I'd bathed my feet. How could I soil them? What kind of response is that? Uh, well, in the original Hebrew, it sounds something like, uh, I've got a headache. I've got work in the morning. I've already got my PJs on. I haven't shaved my legs. Stop. <laughs> Insert whatever you want there. But basically, he shut down, right? Record scratches. Er, whoops. Marvin Gaye's done. Candles out. Vibe check. Not good. House lights turning on. Okay. Uh, we've miscommunicated. We each have desires, and they're going different directions. I want intimacy, you want to rest. And suddenly this couple that we've watched dance in beautiful union is going different directions. And let me tell you something, that's gonna happen in marriage. A misalignment of your desires will lead to disconnect, miscommunication, and tension. 
That will happen. And let me tell you, that surprises some young couples. When I do weddings and say that, you're gonna disagree. They look at each other like, what, us? No, not us. And I'm like, okay, just watch. It's gonna happen that he's gonna come home from a hard world and be in the mood for love and he's gonna want romance and start touching you and you'll go, hey, why don't you just clean up your underwear on the floor? Somebody clean up around here. I'm not gonna do it. I don't work for you. Or I've seen couples that she just wants to go out and have a night on the town with their friends, not another night at home on TV. And I've watched a couple go out for dinner. He slips away to go to the bathroom. 20 minutes later, she's like, where is he? Walks into the bar and he's watching the game on the TVs in the bar. I've watched a couple do this. And she went, what are you doing? And he was shocked. He was like, well, the TVs are in here. And you're like, whoops, this date night's off to a bad start. Different desires, miscommunication. And suddenly there's tension in this area of romance. And what are we gonna do? Let me tell you this. Uh, you should cover this in premarital counseling, but I'll give you a preview uh, if you're looking at marriage of, of the five greatest sources of conflict that are coming in your marriage. Uh, married couples, feel free to amen or groan audibly when I get to yours. Uh, you decide which feels safest to you. Number one, in-laws expectations of the other's families about how things should work, how much time you should spend with them during holidays, who should get the lion's share of each holiday, and their expectations of how you should run their family, which statistically, if you look at it, usually the biggest source of problems is her or dad, that he's got ideas of how that man should be treating his baby girl. Number two is usually his mom, that she's got ideas of how you should care. So those usually are the two biggest conflicts. They've got all kinds of ideas of how you should be taking care of their sweet baby, right? So you got conflict about in-laws. Number two is about money. And it's not necessarily about like, uh, do we have enough? It's what's our value system when we determine how to spend it. Right? I remember a young couple telling me once they went to the grocery store right after they got married and they're waiting there in line and he just kind of grabs some gum, throws it in there, they buy it. And she looked at me and goes, are we gonna talk about that? Are you gonna buy that? She's like, how many other things do you just buy? How much of our money are you just spending on, you know, whatever you feel like? And he's like, it's a pack of gum. She's like, with my money, right? And suddenly you're like, oops, how do we spend our money? I've seen couples talk about that, that whenever she talks about something she thinks is essential, he starts talking about the need to save and responsibility, all right? And yet when he sees something he wants, suddenly it's essential and he purchases it right away. And you go, no, wait a minute. What, what's essential? What's optional, right? Uh, how do we spend our money? Number three is roles. Who does what? Who cleans up the house? Who does the dishes? Who cooks? A lot of us come in with assumptions from our family background of what the other will do. And how are we going to work that out? And I talk to a lot of young couples. They go, oh, that's not going to be a problem. We'll all do everything. <laughs> sure. Yeah, good luck with that. You're going to come in with different standards of what it means that something's done. He'll make the bed and thinks it looks fine. You think it looks like a disaster. I remember talking to a couple once where he was a bit of a neat freak and he would clean the whole kitchen and they were telling a story of uh, how she went to make a cup of coffee and she used a sugar packet but only wanted half the sugar and so she just put the packet on the counter for later. That was a big talk later because he was like, I cleaned the kitchen and now it's not clean. She's like, what do you mean it's not clean? He's like, <laughs> she's like, a sugar packet? Yeah, not clean, right? Whoops, miscommunication. Uh, the other one is uh, kids. How many are you going to have? When? Does she stay home to care for the kid when they're a baby? Do you all bring a nanny into the house? Do you go private school, public? How do we manage how we take care of kids? Discipline? How do we do discipline? And number five is communication. 
Can we process how we feel? Can we navigate our expectations, particularly as it relates to sex? And in all of this, there are going to be sources of conflict, of miscommunication. Even among the best of us, it's going to happen. I had a buddy that said this about he and his wife. Whenever they would hit an issue where suddenly you're like, whoops, there's a disconnect. Whoops, our desires are not aligned. He said, I would tell her to break the tension. If we were synchronized swimmers, we'd be getting a two. That synchronized swimmers get their scores by leaping in unison and leaping in unison. But inevitably, whatever the topic is, you'll leap and smack heads. Or you'll dive different directions and go, wait a minute. We have different goals. We have different desires. And our different goals and desires have led us to pursue what we want for ourselves. And when we pursue self-exaltation, it can lead to marriage disintegration. And if we're meant to be one, sometimes we're going to see our desires pull each other apart. Earlier in the book, it was outside stressors that were coming in on this couple. Now it's internal. We have desires that are misaligned, different desires, different priorities, different paths, and my feelings are hurt because you are not giving me what I want. When your mate's not coming through with what you want, how do you respond? What do you do when you're hurt? What's this man gonna do? Is he gonna retaliate? Is he gonna roll his eyes? Is he gonna huff off? How do you respond? Verse four. My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. What's his response? She's unwilling to come to the door. He puts myrrh on the bolt. Now, if you haven't bought myrrh recently, it's expensive. It was imported with great cost from Arabia and India and women in that day used their perfume sparingly. So catch the metaphor here. This man takes anointing oil. You anoint something, you bless. He takes expensive anointing oil and he puts it on the very place of offense. The very place he was hurt, the very place that denied him his desire. Rather than retaliate, rather than lash back, rather than kick at the bolt, what does he do? He blesses where he's been wounded. And he blesses so extravagantly that when she rises to touch the handle, myrrh is dripping from the very bolt. How do you respond to conflict in a marriage? Number one is you refuse to retaliate. You refuse to retaliate. When bruised, we bless. That's how you disagree in a marriage. You don't repay. Uh, Peter taught us this. When we did this series in 1 Peter, he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When reviled, we bless. Why? Because God will see that and God will reward that. Well, why does God value that? Because that's what God does every day. Matthew 5, Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God is kind to us even when we're not. God is gracious with us even when we dismiss him. And if we are the children of God, we should look like our dad, that we bless even when we're not blessed in return, right? And one of the reasons God does that in Romans 2, it says that God's kindness leads us to repentance. What led many of us to repent, to turn from our selfish path? The kindness of God won us over. And it's true in a marriage. If you just 
Revile for reviling back, hit for hitting back. All you're gonna do is end up bruised and beaten. If you fight fire with fire, you just get more fire and your house won't dilapidate and grow cold. You'll burn your house down. And that's not a good way to lead a marriage. You win through kindness. Princess Bride taught us this. You remember at the beginning of Princess Bride, Buttercup, it's kind of mean, certainly insensitive. She's ordering Wesley around, fetch me that picture. But what does he do? You're not the boss of me. You don't know me. Does he do that? No. He doesn't cower in fear. He doesn't retaliate in anger. But he gently says, as you wish, and grabs the pitcher. And it's his kindness that melts her hard heart. And they fall deeply into a love, right? That's how it works. But if you fight fire with fire, you'll burn your house down. Proverbs 26 says, as charcoal to hot embers and wood to a fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. Don't escalate. Don't insult back. That won't solve anything. That's foolish. Proverbs 14 says, the wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Proverbs 10 says, hatred stirs up dissension, but love, it covers over all wrongs. Proverbs 15, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox with hatred with it. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 21, it's better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. It's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Proverbs 29, a man of wrath stirs up strife, but one who gives to anger causes much transgression. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. If you're proud and selfish and arrogant, Hit for hit back, insult for insult back. You just throw more wood on the fire. And husband, wife, your anger unchecked will burn your house down. When reviled, we do not revile back. When bruised, we bless. We refuse to retaliate. Boss Rutten was the first heavyweight champion of the UFC. Right? The man made his career beating up men. And at the height of his fame in mixed martial arts, he was in an interview and they asked him about his previous career. He was a bouncer at nightclubs. And so they wanted to hear the stories. They're like, oh man, what do you do when people are in nightclubs and their egos get bruised and they get mad and suddenly they start to yell and it goes from verbal assault to physical assault and things get rowdy. How do you handle the tension that inevitably happens when people's egos and alcohol are all mixed together? And he said, when I was at a bar, what I would do, he said, the first thing when I saw tensions rising is I'd compliment the guy. He said, as I saw people heating up, he'd come up and be like, hey guys, ooh, nice shirt, I like that. And he said, a compliment disrupted their anger. He said, and then I would empathize. I would say, hey, I know that was frustrating. Hey, I know that would, that would be frustrating to me too. You understand where he's coming from? He said, and I would empathize and acknowledge where their feelings were hurt. And then after you acknowledge the hurt, you offer a different pathway. Hey, let me buy you each around. Let's all relax. We can have fun. Let's enjoy tonight. Let's not escalate some direction we don't want to go. And he said, if I would compliment empathize, open a different pathway, I'll dissolve conflict. And you can tell the interviewer was a little <laughs> bummed about it. He was hoping he would say like, well, you punch him in the throat or something like that. But he was like, no, 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 no. The way you dissolve conflict is with kindness, right? You learn that from Boss Rutten, okay? Uh, the UFC fighter. That's how you do it. When reviled, we don't revile back. We bless, right? Don't wait until you think they deserve it. God didn't do that with us. We don't do that with our mate. You go first or else no one will go and you'll stand there while your house falls apart. You be the first one to bless. So he blesses her, myrrh upon the bolt, in the very place of offense, he will not be offensive back. And when he does that, it works. 
Her heart is stirred and she arises to meet him. In verse six, she says, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. She said, I don't feel good about this sense of distance. So I sought him, but found him not. I called to him, but gave no answer. She realizes there's a disconnect. She realizes there's an emotional distance between us and she doesn't like it. But rather than sit there, she does number two. You rise up and seek reconciliation. I will not retaliate, but I will seek to reconcile. Reconcile, to conciliate means to put on friendly terms again. To reconcile means I want us to get back to familial intimacy. She says, hey, I feel separation, but I'm not gonna be content with that. So many marriage counseling sessions begin with a couple that are there and they are so cold, they can't even look at each other. And yet as counselors begin to speak to them, you realize what happened was they have to go all the way back to year one, that they did something that bothered you and rather than deal with it and say, that hurt my feelings, you go, oh, it's fine. And you pretend it's no big deal, but you let resentment begin to build up in your heart like sediment. And the more little resentments build up, the less love and intimacy flows through until suddenly it's stopped up and you don't want to be in this marriage anymore. But when you feel hurt, when you sense a disconnect, I don't think they're okay, you don't sit back and wait. You don't go, oh, whatever. I see so many couples that they'll be shocked that they're blowing up over little things. We get a big argument about unloading the dishwasher. And you go, no, you let all this water under the bridge. And yes, now a light rain will flood the bridge. You gotta deal with resentments early. When you sense distance, you don't make peace with that. You seek reconciliation. I wanna reconciliate. I wanna be friends again. She does not sit still. She moves towards the beloved. Let me tell you something. That takes humility and pride has no place in a marriage, right? Mark Regneris, who does quite a bit of study on love and romance in America, says this, the most reliable predictor of divorce, marrying before age 21. Why? Young divorcees, when compared to their counterparts who remain married, are more immature, more self-centered, more independent, less religious, and much more likely to describe themselves as attractive. What does all that mean? They're proud. I love me and I'm too proud. And let me tell you something. If you're too proud to apologize, don't get married. Arrogance has no place in a marriage. And so you got somebody that does not apologize. Let me tell you, if you can't remember in this room the last time you apologized for something you did wrong, you're proud. And you need to stop for a moment and realize, hey, I'm a sinner too. And all the chaos around me may not always be somebody else's fault. It's funny. I've seen so many people do that. They'll watch relationship one after another fail. And they go, I don't know what's going on. And you go, well, well, what's the common denominator in each of these relationships? It's you. So maybe look inside and be willing to admit your faults. If you are thinking about linking up with somebody, but they can't ever admit that they're a sinner too and part of the cause of the chaos in the world you be careful getting married. You need someone that's willing to pursue reconciliation. And you do that through humility of confessing. Let me tell you something in marriage. Your goal should never be to win the argument. If your goal is to win the argument, so many people, they fight for victory, but in doing so, they're fighting against their mate. And you might get victory at the cost of intimacy. You may win the fight, but you lose the heart of the person you were fighting with. You don't fight for you. You fight for y'all. You're looking for a team win. Your goal is not victory. Your goal is intimacy. 
How do we get unity? And not just the uneasy piece of walking on eggshells. How do we get to real heartfelt unity where I hear your heart, you hear my heart. I believe you hear me. I believe I hear you and I trust you. You fight for reconciliation, for intimacy. You're not fighting to win the argument. You're fighting to win the other person. And here she seeks him out and she's humble in doing it. Can I give you some advice on that? Never storm out. You may need to take a beat if you're getting too heated, but don't slam the door, get in the car and peel out and then wonder if you're ever coming home. That's immature, that's childish. You make it clear, I may need a beat, but my goal is to get us back to working towards unity. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You may need to take a moment, but don't take a month. So many marriages, the reason they end up in counseling, spending a lot of money is because they were unwilling to deal with problems when they were small. And time does not heal all wounds. It doesn't have that power. It's you gotta talk it out. The silent treatment is childish. It solves nothing. And I would say your body language is loud. You need to look at what you're communicating with what you say and what you don't say. Early on for me in marriage with Donna, I realized when we disagreed about something, my mind went into analytical mode and I was instantly thinking why what I thought was justified was rational and should therefore be adopted by all parties. <laughs> and as I was describing this and understanding the clear logic that led me that A equals B and B equals C, so A equals C, as I would talk about that, I learned that my tone mattered. I'd never really thought about my tone. But I wouldn't yell at her, but she had to tell me, I, I don't dispute your arguments. But she had to say, but the way it makes me feel is demeaned. The way you're explaining it makes me feel unloved. And it feels like you think I'm stupid or it makes me feel less safe to share my heart. And let me tell you something, man. If your wife ever says something like that, what you don't say is, well, your feelings are invalid. Get over it. Like, that's not gonna work. The moment you realize you've hurt your spouse, you stop. The war is not against you. You take the weapons out, drop the clip, empty the chamber, throw the weapon. You're like, no, 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 no. I'm not fighting against you. This isn't a fight against you. We're fighting together. And I remember when I realized that about Donna, I didn't realize the way I was talking, how it came across to her. I didn't know that. I wasn't trying to hurt her, but I realized, oh, but if it does, I don't want to do that. And I realized you had to risk telling me how you felt when I didn't feel like a safe person to say that to. And I'll never forget, I got up from the table, walked around and sat next to her and I said, look, you're never the problem and I'm never the problem. We are a team, and we're gonna put the problem on the table and deal with it together. Now, the problem may be money, the problem may be in-laws, the problem may be my hurt feelings, it may be yours. The problem may be something I'm insecure about or something you are, I don't know, but we're not gonna fight each other. We're not fighting with each other, we're fighting with each other. I'm not fighting for victory over you, I'm fighting for unity with you, because if we're together, we can overcome any one of these problems. And here you see this woman does it right. They do not retaliate, but she seeks reconciliation. We're gonna get this right. We're gonna work on our tone. Verse seven, the watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, and they took away my veil, those watchmen on the walls. Very confusing. This is one of those passages where you're like, is that what happened? She went out to look for him and some watchmen started roughing her up? Like what? I thought she was Solomon's wife. The king's wife, some watchmen are gonna lay hands on her? I don't think so. And so it gets real confusing. So what's going on here? Well, in previous passages, when she desired to be married to him, the watchmen are, are introduced. And, and a lot of commentators think that's a metaphor or image that she wasn't running through the city looking for him. She feels the disconnect. And in the previous passage, she wanted to be married to cross the distance of their singleness into marriage. And, and the watchmen were like her conscience. Are you sure he's the right guy? Are you sure this is the right thing? She ultimately says yes. 
Here the idea maybe is she feels the disconnect. She longs to be with him and the watchmen are uh, convicting her. It's, it's that conscience again, convicting her. Hey, my insensitivity hurt him. And she feels that disconnect. And as she feels the disconnect and uncertainty of how to solve it, she asks for help. In verse eight, it says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. If you find my beloved, tell him I'm sick with love. She looks to her friends, help me. Which incidentally is a smart thing to do if you're struggling in your marriage. Uh, I remember for me, the first sermon I ever gave at a church. I was right out of college, 22 years old. And the pastor came to me and he said, I want you to preach. And I said, okay, about what? And he said, about marriage and parenting. I was like, okay, two things I know nothing about. And so I started listening to all these marriage and parenting sermons. And then I started calling up couples that had been married for decades and interviewing them. And as I did that, it was so helpful for me because I needed in front of me images of real couples I knew that that did it well. And I remember one couple, it shocked me because I knew them for years and they told me about a season where they thought about ending it that they realized like a lot of people, they got married and then they got busy with work and busy with volunteering and busy with careers and they got home and rather than cultivate intimacy, it was easier to just turn on a TV and then they got kids and busy with kids and raising the kids and their lives began to go different directions. And when the kids finally graduated, they looked at each other and said, man, I don't even know you. I'm not even sure I like you. I'm just roommates. And years of little resentments had added up to a completely cold heart. And yet in the midst of that, as they were thinking about leaving, they called their friends and told them. And they had some friends come around them and encourage them. I know the fire of your love seems like it's gone out, but dig through the embers together. And I promise you, there's some coals that still have some heat to them. And they were able to rekindle their love again and to really find their love flourish. But sometimes the wisest thing you can do is confess to some friends, I need help. So she tells the daughters, you got to help me. And they respond in verse nine. And they say, What's your beloved more than any other beloved? O most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than any beloved that you thus adjure us? She says, help me find this guy. And they say, why? What's so great about that guy? And she takes up their challenge and begins to describe him. She said in verse 10, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. She says, he is handsome. He's a prize. He's a treasure. But I want you to notice what's happening there. How do you handle conflict? How do you swim against that tide of isolation back towards intimacy? You don't retaliate when hurt you bless. You seek reconciliation. You seek unity, not victory. And then you recall what you respect. Recall what you respect about them. Because when someone hurts you, we tend to think about all their character defects and amend out any evidence to the contrary. If someone hurts your feelings, they're not a decent person who maybe made a mistake. They're a monster, right? And yet the daughters tell her, why should we seek the beloved? And she says, I'll tell you why. And she starts to recount the things she loves about him. I love what one commentator said. He says, she doesn't so much find the groom as she rediscovers herself and the reasons she married him. Their question forced her to recall what she loves about this man. And that's what you do. Before you re-engage, recall what you respect. Remember what you love about him. Let me save you some money. This is what you're gonna do at the marriage conference. When your marriage is in jeopardy and your friends come and say, hey, we paid for you to go to this conference, you have to go, that sort of thing, and you show up, they're gonna sit you down and the guy on stage is gonna make you sit down and write a letter with all the things in it that you love about your mate. And as they say that, sit down and write out specifically what you love about them. 
I promise you there's going to be a couple sitting next to you that's going to go, we're going to run out of time. Three hours to write all that I love about you? How can I do it? Oh my gosh, let me try. And that's the couple that writes each other poems every week and kind of posts them on the fridge and you're going to go, Bleh, right? <laughs> and then on the other side of you, there's going to be a couple that can't write anything. They've just so resentful, so bitter, so uninterested. They're going to strain to be like, your clothing choices are adequate. <laughs> and you're going to have to dig deep to try to find the simplest thing you can compliment. And some of you, that'll be awkward because you don't talk like that, but they're going to make you do it. And you're going to write out what you love about them. You're going to write out things you appreciate about them. Then they're going to make you get on your knees and read it to them. And about point two or three, waterworks. You're going to cry like a baby. Because suddenly, as your heart begins to thaw, you're going to remember why you love this person and what you love about him. And here she doesn't wait seven years for the conference. As she feels the disconnect, she goes, wait a second, I'm hurt, he's hurt, but I'm going to step in to reconcile and I'm going to remember what I respect about him. I'm going to call to mind the things I love about this person. There's a crazy story, kind of the inverse of that. Um, my... Uh, Old Greek professor, Harold Honer, God rest his soul, was just such an uh, exacting and precise linguist. And someone told me the story once of him in a marriage counseling scenario, which I was like, I'm already in. I want to hear how that went. And he said he was sitting down uh, with this couple and the man was frustrated with his wife not being responsive to his needs and, and not caring for things that he valued and, and was just so frustrated with this woman. And as he was recounting all her shortcomings, Dr. Honer at one point said, okay, um, so you've listed a few of her faults. Uh, let's list all of her faults. Let's just get them all out there. And he came to a board and was like, what are some other faults of hers? She's a bad listener, okay? Not responsive to your needs sexually. All right, anything else? Think she doesn't take care of herself physically? You wanna add that? All right, and the guy's like, what? are we doing this? And the wife's looking at him like, wait, what? What is this? We paid for this? And on and on, he just makes the guy, the guy's like, well, now that you mention it, and he just makes the guy fill up a board with all of her shortcomings. Isn't that nice? And then when he was done, is that all? The guy's like, yeah, I think that's it. Dr. Herner was like, okay, um, let's see if we can sub out each of her sins for another sin. Um, so you don't feel like she's as communicative. Would you rather her be uh, violent and prone to fits of anger? He's like, what? No. He's like, no, no, okay. She's not responsive to your needs. Would you rather her be out in the night and you not know where she's spending her nights just flinging herself from man to man? The guy's like, what? No. He's like, okay, would you rather? And he just kept trying to sub out some sins for other sins. And the guy wasn't willing to sub out any. And so finally, at the end of the list, Dr. Hunter said, so you don't want to sub out any of her sins. Oh, so you just want a perfect woman. That's what you want. Yeah, I don't think they make those. Are you a perfect husband? Oh, you're not one either. Okay, so we have two imperfect people knit together. Now let's find out how to get along. Let me tell you the lie the enemy will lodge in you. As you married to somebody, their flaws will come to the surface and you'll begin to see their flaws and they'll irritate you and then you will fantasize about the perfect other. And I've talked to many men that sick of the flaws of their wife will leap out to the mysterious romantic other and marry her and then realize, oh, she's flawed too. And maybe in some worse ways. And maybe I made a mistake. 
there are no perfect people. And what your sin will do will lead you to highlight their inadequacies and downplay their virtues. You be careful. When you're frustrated, don't amend the data just to make yourself the victim. You look and say, what was desirable about this person? And here in the midst of this conflict, she remembers. And she begins to describe him from head to toe. She says his head is of the finest gold. He's a prize. That, that, that's uh, compared like to a deity. There's a nobility to him. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. That means he has dark curly locks. And they're black, meaning there's a youthful, no gray, that he's strong. Uh, this is not essential, uh, incidentally, that men have flowing locks. Uh, but you know what? Good for him, okay? It's fine. <laughs> Uh, verse 12, his eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. What does that mean? Doves in a milk bath. Uh, doves, there's a gentleness, and uh, milk, that there's a nourishing. She says, I look at his face, and his face isn't angry. He's not a harsh man. There's a gentleness to him that's nourishing. Do you see that? She, she feels safe with him. It's like Schindler's List, where Schindler says that the greatness of a man is a restraining of his power for the good of others. She looks and says, this man is strong, but he's not harsh. He's gentle with me. Gentlemen, never yell at your wife. Don't ever threaten. You are her place of safety. And she says here, his cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. She says his beard smells great, basically. And uh, in the Odyssey, the lotus eaters would eat the lilies, the lotuses, and it would lead to a blissful state. She's saying that his lips are blissful, right? His arms are like rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedeckled with sapphires. She says he is sculpted of the finest rocks. He's cut. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. He hasn't skipped leg day. His appearance is like Lebanon, choices of the cedars. There's a grand, majestic nature to him like a tree. We would say that man is an oak. His mouth is most sweet. He is altogether desirable. She says, notice that he is gentle, but he is strong. He is powerful, but he is loving, right? That's what she says. What she's doing is not particularly sexual, but it's deeply respectful. She's saying, this man has value and I honor him. He is strong and he is loving. And let me tell you something, ladies, that is powerful to communicate to your husband. Sheltie Feldham, who in her research on couples said uh, in a survey, if you had to choose between being alone and unloved or inadequate and disrespected, which would you choose? 74% of men chose to rather feel unloved than to feel disrespected. That men long to feel respected. That is the direct path to a man's heart. One of the greatest scenes ever in a movie, if you want to understand a man's heart, is the natural. I don't even like baseball. I love this movie. Robert Redford, fantastic at the plate, cranking balls out of the stadium, crowd loves him, the crowd's going wild, so wonderful what he can do. And then he hits a slump. He's not able to perform. And one after, game after another, he strikes out, he's lost the touch. And the crowd boos him, the crowd criticizes him, and then most damning of all, they're even disinterested in him. And one day he's back up there struggling at the plate and it all looks so depressing. But the woman who loves him watches him struggle, sees him at his lowest. And when the crowd's all sitting with backs turned, they don't care, she looks at her man and she stands. And the crowd mocks her, but she doesn't care. She stands up in all white, standing to 
respect and honor that man she cares about. And let me tell you something, he sees that and it strikes so deeply in the male heart, that longing to be valued, and cracks that ball right out of the stadium, right? Because that's what that man wants. Never shame your man publicly. That is so wounding, so hard to recover from. And here, even in the midst of their dislocation, she finds a way to celebrate and honor this man. They speak to her, the others, they say, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him after you? And she says, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the garden, to gather to the lilies. This is the other thing. They say, where can we find him? She already knows where he is. So is he really lost or is all this just a metaphor of their disconnection? But she says, he's in the garden. All throughout this poem, the garden has been uh, sometimes her body when described sexually, but more often it's the metaphor for their love, their intimacy. And here in this moment, she feels the disconnect. And they say, where is he? He's in the garden. He's not left. He's not elsewhere. He didn't flee the country. He's in our place of intimacy. He's trying to work back towards reconciliation as well. That she says he's in the garden and he's there among the lilies. He's choosing love too. There's a commitment to resolve their conflict together. And she says in verse three, I am my beloved, my beloved is mine. And he grazes among the lilies. That's the next point. They respond to each other and reiterate their devotion. They reiterate their devotion. Our expectations when misaligned lead to frustration. But rather than pulling apart, we tell each other, no, I'm devoted to you. I choose you all over again. And you see the pronouns change in verse four. He says, you are beautiful as Tirza. Now they're talking to each other. That when they're hurt, they don't flee, they don't run off. They move towards each other. She moves to reconcile. He's there in the garden working it out. And as they come together and begin to talk, they're not harsh, but what do they do? They reiterate their devotion. She says, I'm my beloved's and he is mine. I belong to you and you belong to me. And when he sees her, he says to her, you're as beautiful as tears of my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Tears was the most beautiful city in the north, Jerusalem the most lovely in the south. He says, you're, you're the best the nation has to offer. You're as majestic as an army in full regalia. He looks at her and he says, you're awesome. You're awesome. That whenever there's conflict, it raises the specter of abandonment. Are you gonna walk out? Are you gonna leave? Notice in the midst of this, their relationship was not just built on desire, but devotion. I don't just lust after you. I choose you. My beloved is mine, and I am his, and you are the best in this nation has to offer. I choose you. And you see, there's something settling about that, that he tells her, I am committed to our devotion. Gentlemen, emotional security is very important to women, even more than financial security. And ladies, I'm, I'm speaking on your behalf because again, statistically, Shelty Feldman and others found that when women were interviewed and were asked, would you rather choose financial struggles or struggles from a lack of closeness or intimacy in your relationship? Over 70% said struggle financially. I'd rather struggle together about how to make ends meet than to feel like we're miles away. That, that silence can be deafening. And here in the midst of their disconnect, he speaks honor to her. He says in verse five, turn away your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. He says, this is intense. In Ugaritic, the same goddess is the goddess of love and war. Love is challenging. It's mystifying, terrifying. And he says, I feel vulnerable in all this. And yet in the midst of that, what does he do? 
He says, your hair is like a flock of goats sleeping down the slopes of the Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from their washing. All of the marrying twins, not one of them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind their veil. What's he doing? Some of you go, wait, 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 we've already done this. This is the same poem from their wedding night. He's saying, everything I loved about you in our young love, I love about you now. I haven't gone anywhere. I'm right here. Even though we're still in the midst of conflict, I choose you. The devotion hasn't waned. Now, he doesn't start talking about her fawn-like breasts or her garden locked. We're not in a sexual moment here. We're working out some stuff, right? And yet in the midst of this, he reiterates, I still prize you. And not only do I prize you, notice his praise elevates. He says in verse eight, there are 60 queens, 80 concubines, virgins without number, but my dove, my perfect one is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her that bore her. He takes these archetypes of females, the noble queen, the hot concubine, the sweet girl next door. And he says, you're better than all of them. Even when we're in miscommunication, I'm not off seeking some other girl. I'm not downloading, re-downloading dating apps. I'm not on Facebook looking up old girlfriends. I choose you. You're better than all of them. I'm with you. What do you do when the well runs dry in the desert? Do you seek another well? No. You dig deeper and the water's there and will come forth. And here, rather than searching for another well, he digs deeper. No, there's intimacy here. We will kindle afresh the desires of our heart by working together and respecting each other and reiterating our devotion. I choose you over and over again. He says in verse 10, who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? He looks at her and he says, I see you like the sun and moon. There's a majesty to you. I see you like an army in full regalia. He honors her. And let me tell you something. When you have that in a marriage, that you have someone working to reconcile, I don't want to win a victory over you. I want to win intimacy with you. I'm committed to reconciling. I choose to respect you and recall what I respect. And as I do that, I reiterate my devotion to you. I'm with you in the fight. When you have that kind of matrix, you can overcome any problem. Earlier in marriage, it may take longer. I remember for me with Donna, there were nights early in our marriage where we, we disagreed on something and I just did not understand where she was coming from. And she did not understand where I was coming from. And I remember one night laying in bed and just feeling, we're laying next to each other but feel miles apart. And I thought, this is how it happens. All these couples I've seen dissipate and dilapidate. It's because right now they accept this kind of distance. And I don't want to accept that. And so we had to find ways to work back. If I'm devoted to you, I choose you. I honor you. I respect you. And in that place of mutual devotion and trust, we can process any problem. And here this couple chooses each other again, chooses to speak kindly and respectfully. You tell them, hey, this is what you said. This is what I heard. This is how it makes me feel. And as you talk about what you think, what you meant, how you feel, for Donna and I, there were some problems it took us all night to solve, but joy came in the morning. And I look now at 18 years of marriage and disagreements that used to take six hours to resolve now take less than six minutes because I know her heart and she knows mine. And we flood each other with devotion and respect. You do this and it gets better. And here she closes by saying, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. And before I was aware, 
My desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. She said, we had a moment of difficulty and I went down to the vineyard to see if it was still in bloom. And it was, and I was there, and I was set on the chariot of my beloved. You can return to kindle afresh your love as you work through conflict. As I talked to that couple that had almost separated, called their friends, they said, Ben, there was barely enough embers to keep the flames of conversation alive. But as we kept talking, we resolved conflict that we had let accumulate for years. And as we did that, as we swept away the years of dust and ash, we found the fire of affection was still there. And I said, what would you say about your marriage now? And they said, it's stronger than ever. They said, we wish people that we knew that are married could know the kind of intimacy and joy we have now. And that's what I want for you. No conflict need to be the end. In fact, it can be the beginning of deeper intimacy if you walk through it together. And here at the end, I love it, they've resolved their conflict. The others tell her, return, O Shulamite, return that we may look upon you. And he says, why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance between two armies? He said, we have found each other. We're beginning a dance together. Her friends say, come away with me. And they're like, no, we're good. We, we figured it out. We're good. Y'all take off. Marvin Gaye's getting back on the record player. Right? <laughs> now, let me close with this. Some of you hear this and, hey, some of you hear this and you need to text before this message is over. Hey, we need to talk. I have some things to apologize for right? Some of you may need to get home and get on your knees and just apologize and not qualify it. I'm so sorry, because every time you do this and this and this, just, just own your part and you begin to bring some heat back into a love that's grown cold. Others of us, maybe you need to pray and repent of your cynicism that love is possible, that maybe God can keep the fires afresh, even in a cold and hostile day. But many of you may be sitting here and you go, well, Ben, I've destroyed relationships. I burned my house down. I let the love grow cold. Ben, I don't even know if I have within me the power to keep a relationship alive. And let me tell you something, you don't. Solomon made a mess of his life later in his years. The Bible doesn't hide the flaws of its heroes. And yet these, these principles work if you work them. But if we just left here with a with a pump-up speech and a couple of helpful tools, that's not sufficient. And that's not what the Bible offers us. It gives us a holy, perfect standard. And as we see it, it also shows us how far we've fallen short. And we're supposed to feel that. And as we do, we confess it and repent. And the Bible says in the midst of our imperfection, there's been one perfect person, Jesus Christ. And he's presented as the groom the perfect husband who loved us when we didn't love us, him back, blessed us when we reviled him, chose us when we crucified him, poured out his blood so that we might live. And when you accept the love of God like that, coming through Jesus Christ, that kind of love becomes not just enough to begin to heal the broken parts of you, to begin to mend that which has been deeply wounded. It also gives you a resource of love to spend on others that I can bless because I've been blessed. I can choose not to revile because I know what it is to be loved by the one who didn't revile me, that I have a source that can now be a source in this relationship. So before you get a relationship with a guy or girl right, let's get this relationship with, with God right. You don't have to come cleaned up. You just have to come honest about your sin 
and let a loving husband, Jesus Christ, wash you clean with the water of his word. That's what Ephesians says. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.